Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. Quick pop quiz for you here. So you're at Chick-fil-A, not today, of course, but um, uh, assuming you were there yesterday, uh, what's one thing you will never hear them say at Chick-fil-A? <laughs> you're welcome. I heard a lot of things about burgers, but yes, you're, you're welcome, right? Whoever said that, right? Then what do they tell you instead? Amen. Amen. Yeah, my, we need, we'll do a field trip to Chick-fil-A, so we can get this squared away. Uh, my pleasure, right? They don't, if you say, oh, thank you, they say, my pleasure. It's part of what makes Chick-fil-A Chick-fil-A, right? It's a way for them to express their, their service-oriented outlook, to show hospitality, even in the context of this brief fast food encounter, But the Chick-fil-A culture, it doesn't just sort of spring up out of nowhere. It doesn't appear by accident. They've spent years working to clearly define their mission, their vision, their values as a company, right? They have all these documents and policies that they've worked on, and, and these govern not just what they do, but who they are. Right, right, where they're going, how they're going to get there. And so, although it may seem small and insignificant, that daily, regular repetition of the phrase, my pleasure, it helps shape their corporate culture to define who they are as a people. They live to serve. They love to serve, and they're trying to display that hospitality in the context of every customer encounter. And in a similar kind of way, when it comes to our study of the law of Moses, we're going to see that it too is a culture-shaping document. The law provides the people of Israel with a clear mission statement, a compelling vision for their future, and a complete set of values for living in community with each other. So look with me today at the, at the opening words of our passage for today. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the very end of chapter 4 and into the first five verses of chapter 5, and then we'll start our work in the Ten Commandments next week. But uh, reading from Deuteronomy 4, verses 44 and 45, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. This is the law. We are about to enter an entirely new section in the book of Deuteronomy, and for the next 21 chapters or so, we're going to listen in on Moses as he explains the meaning of the law for the people of Israel. Did you catch that? 21 chapters of law. (laughs) Yes. Amen. All the way from chapter 5 to chapter 26. That is a lot of law. Kids, you may have grown up, gotten married, and started having your own children by the time we get through all of this. If part of you is is like dying a little bit inside right now, you're probably not alone. But it's funny to me that we can spend so many hours absorbing books and and TV shows and, and movies about the law, 
and yet at the same time be so bored and frustrated and generally dismissive of the law in the Bible. Right? I mean, judging by the popularity of, of legal TV shows and, and legal movies and books, I'd say as a culture, we are actually pretty obsessed with law. Like, this is, we, we want to see justice served, right? We want to see wrongdoing punished. We want to see the innocent for, set free and the guilty punished. We love watching those fiery cross-examinations and the, the lawyers huddled up in their offices working to, to crack the case. But when it comes to the Bible and laws in the Bible, all we generally do is groan. And yet, according to Psalm 1, the blessed man or woman is someone who delights in the law of the Lord. Someone who meditates on the law day and night. But delight probably, as we've already seen, is not the word that comes to mind when we're staring at 21 chapters of law in Deuteronomy. Perhaps part of the problem is our word, law, because it's so restrictive. And in English, this tends to be limited to things like, 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 like speeding laws, right? Like don't drive this fast, or, or to rules about, about uh, our taxes, or things like that. But in the Bible, the Hebrew word for law, or Torah, is, really means guidance or instruction, and is much broader in scope than our English word, law. So, for example, on the one hand, in the Jewish tradition, there are 613 different laws in the Torah. But at the same time, that word Torah, or law, could also refer more narrowly to just the Ten Commandments, which we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. Or it could expand a little bigger to talk about the entire first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic Law, the, the Pentateuch, including all the narrative in there as well. Or at times, the word Torah might even refer to the entire book of the Old Testament. And as is often the case then, context is going to determine which of those meanings we're talking about at any time. But going back to Psalm 1, the delight is not so much in the content of a specific rule or regulation, although that sometimes might be the case. The delight big picture comes from the opportunity that the law gives us to know God better. Right? Think about it. The law is a reflection of God's character. It's a, a picture, a glimpse of who he is, his priorities, his values, his cares and concerns. And more specifically, his care and concern for, for us, for his people. The specificity of the law in some places may seem uh, strange or unusual to us. But it's actually a reflection, an incredible reflection of God's intimate involvement in every little part of our lives. No matter how small or seemingly random or obscure or mundane or ordinary. And so as we work through this material, I want you to remind yourself over and over again, all these details, they're, they're concrete evidence of God's love for you in the middle of the ordinary ups and downs of your life. There are evidence that he's not distant and aloof and disinterested. 
Rather, our God is a God who sees. He sees you in all the specificity of your family life and your work life. Everything, all of it. Now, on the one hand, the law reveals the stunning and absolute holiness of God, right? We get a, a glimpse of his majesty and his authority and his dominion. And, and we talked about the, the fire and the smoke and the thunder and, and God's awesome splendor. But on the other hand, the law also reveals his care and concern, his passion for people. Human beings are the only creatures in God's creation made in God's image. And the law is God's good guide for helping us to live out that high calling, shaping and and forming us into the people that he wants us to be, even when that law might seem strange to us in places. In fact, I want to encourage you to lean into that strangeness. Because behind every law, there's a a real person or people, real situations at work. Someone just like you or me, just an ordinary man or woman trying to figure out life, trying to understand themselves and, and the people around them, men and women, asking the same questions as we are. What should I do now in this situation, in this moment? And so I delight in 21 chapters of law because we're about to study some of the most intensely practical and applicable parts of the Bible. Scripture that that shines a light into every little nook and cranny of my life. So when I make a mess of everything, or when someone hurts me, or when I want to honor God, or when I'm thrust into conflict, or when I'm blessed abundantly, or when I'm feeling trapped in servitude, and on and on and on. God's law is speaking to all these situations. As Moses says uh, just a few verses earlier in in verse 40, "'Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today.'" that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So I delight in 21 chapters of law because in it I can see the hand of God intimately involved in the ordinariness of my life, of family conflict and corporate worship. Right, of personal holiness and national corporate identity. All of it governed and guided by God for his glory and our good. So that's all well and good, but now what? So that, that's what is the law, but how should we then respond to the law? Well, before we get into all the little nitty-gritty details, which will come in the following weeks, Look with me at at the first verses here in chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So here Moses makes three very clear commands of the people. He says, Hear, learn, and do. 
So how should we respond to the law? Big picture is that you need to hear it, and you need to learn it, and you need to do it. So first, hearing it. Now, given how verbal we are as people, it's amazing how much miscommunication can take place, right? Just, just even in our families, among people that we love and care for, who seem to know us so well, right? In the middle of some kind of conflict or argument, have you found yourself thinking, like, are they even listening to anything I'm saying? Like, like can they not hear the words coming out of my mouth? <laughs> Am I speaking a foreign language? We have such short attention spans, and we're so easily distracted by the things around us. We're just not good listeners. You've heard the research, right? The 10%, people only hear about internalized 10% of what you say. So it's like a a lost cause, us preaching every week up here. (laughs) Just might as well repeat the same material 90% of the time. But this isn't unique to our technological age as if, you know, well, this is, we can just blame this on our iPhones or something. Because multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses interrupts to say, Hear, O Israel! Hear, O Israel! Hear, O Israel! It's like he's like, hey, come on, listen up, pay attention. Eyeballs, like I'm saying important stuff here. You need to listen. Right? Because the hearing Moses is talking about here is more than just listening passively. Right? I often find that I can write my sermons best by going to a coffee shop because there's less distractions than at home. But it's not exactly silent. It's not a library. Right? There's all kind of, I can hear the conversations at the table next to me and all the noise of the machines and there's music playing in the background. And I'm hearing it all but I'm not really listening. It's not sinking in. It goes in one ear, straight out the other. It just fades into the background. But clearly God wants us to hear, to to listen, to internalize, to really grab hold of what he's telling us. To listen intently with with focus and with attention. To meditate on them. to, to, To ruminate on them. To wrestle with them. Like, like some delicious meal that, that you eat slowly, savoring every last bite. Or like, uh, like sitting and watching a sunset, right? You don't want to miss any detail, just lingering there in the dark sky, watching it turn from, from golden yellows to, to brilliant oranges to dazzling pinks and slowly fading into a deep purple, and then finally into blackness. It's like, I don't want to miss any of that. I just want to sit there and soak it in. I don't want it again and again and again and again. I mean, how can you ever get tired of going and watching a sunset? And that's, I think, what it means to shema, or to hear God's word. Right? That's the heart behind the practice of, of Christian devotions daily. Not checking off an item on your to-do list. Not cranking through some one-year Bible plan. Not trying to please God with your piety. But sitting and soaking 
in God's Word, reading slowly, reading carefully, reading consistently. It means pausing to think about what you've just read. Or maybe you get to the end of the paragraph and you realize, I have no idea how I just got here. Like, my eyes have gone down this whole page and I have no idea what came before. And realizing, I've just got to go back and read it again. And it happens again. I go back to the beginning. I read it again. I'm like, I don't know what is wrong with my brain, but apparently I need to read this like eight times before I can actually recognize the words that are being said and they sink in and connect in my heart and my brain. Or writing it down or talking about it with your friends or your family members. Basically doing whatever it takes to keep the words in your head long enough that they can begin to take root in your life. But of course, hearing is still only the, 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 the first step, right? So he says, hear, but, but then I want you to, to learn the law. Now, this is perhaps the best week of the year for students, right? Because this is it. Like, school is done for pretty much everyone everywhere. Even homeschool students will get some kind of break over the summer, at least from most of their classes. But while that may be true for math and history, there are no limitations placed on learning God's law. Right? There's no class, there's no final exam, but there's also no end of the semester. You can't complete the curriculum. Right? So you're never too young to start learning the law. I remember when our kids were little, right, where we were reading Bible stories to them, and even before they could understand what was going on, bringing them to church. It was just part of what it meant to be born into our family. And at the other end of the spectrum, you're never too old to stop learning. I've been so humbled by my uh, mother and father-in-law, who have been Christians basically their entire lives, and they are still regularly sharing insights and observations from God's Word as He speaks to them daily. They've been through the Bible I don't know how many times, and it's still so amazing. I mean, this is so cool. I, I just saw this. Akari's mom's like, I feel like I've never read this before. Learning over and over again. As it says in Psalm 92, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So how do we do this? Well, obviously reading and meditating is a big part of it, as we just noted. But learning, I think about it as a more dedicated and focused attempt to internalize and remember what we read or hear. So again, as when our children were younger, we had this children's catechism that we went through as a family, asking just these basic questions about God and the Bible and the world. And I know many of you are doing the same thing. We put it in our weekly email. If you're new to the church, subscribe to our weekly email, and we have the catechism questions in there every week to do with your children at home. But even as adults, we can do the same thing. Uh, This year, I've been using a devotional book that in addition to all my Bible reading, it, has, uh, it walks me through the major creeds and confessions 
of the Christian church, and it includes the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. These are just uh, catechisms teaching about the basics of Christian faith. Now, maybe that sounds too structured or too rigid to you, but I, I've loved it as a way to systematically focus my attention on learning these things. The point is that we're to do more than just hear the law. We're also meant to exert energy and effort in learning it as well, implanting it in our own hearts. But as important as hearing and learning are, they're also incomplete, obviously, until we also start doing the law. So that's where Moses says, be careful to do the law as well. You know, many years ago, before I was a pastor, I was working a computer job, and I was super committed to getting a handle on all this massive number of tasks and projects I was in charge of. So I invested in this very complicated uh, program that would help me manage all these, it was like a project management software system. And I spent, I did watch YouTube videos and like learn how to enter everything in. I got all that organized, all my tasks, all my projects, all my categories, uh, all my tags, everything, all sifted out in there. But then of course, the, now I still got to do all this work. <laughs> It's like, great, it's all organized, but uh, it's kind of pointless. I've still got to finish these projects and crank through this list. And the same is true here, because hearing the law is good, learning the law is good, but if we never actually do anything with it, then we're missing the boat. It would be like spending all your money Uh, investing in this expensive, high-end kitchen equipment and utensils and baking gear and the the best ingredients and stocking your pantry and and having the kitchen of your dreams, Instagram-worthy kind of place, and then never cooking anything in it. I mean, what's the point? It would be ridiculous. And if all you do is accumulate knowledge... But never let that sink in and transform your heart and your life. Then you're like the man who stares at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he saw there, as James says. Right? So what's the solution? It's pretty easy. He says, start putting into practice the things that you have learned. Do them. So if God convicts you of something on a Sunday morning, Write it down. Do whatever it takes so that you remember to then put it into practice later in the day or maybe even during the fellowship meal. Right? Don't let the day pass by without doing something about it. I think we've all ended up somewhere around like Wednesday or Thursday of the week and you realize, oh, yeah, I was supposed to do that. I'll get to that later. And then more emails come and phone calls and it just gets lost in the shuffle. And that moment of conviction is gone. Look, if there's a relational wound that needs tending to, go and seek out that person. Don't let the chores and concerns of the day crowd it out. Don't let time steal away the urgency to act. Believing the right thing is critical. 
right? Know the law, learn the law, understand the law. But it's only half of the picture because if you never put anything into practice, you are stunting your growth as a Christian. Right beliefs must always translate into right practice. So as we enter into, over the coming weeks, a more in-depth study of the details of the law, I want you to keep these three questions in mind through it all. So first, how am I slowing down and making space in my life to hear the law? How am I slowing down and making space in my life to hear the law? And secondly, what specific practices am I embracing to help me learn the law? And then thirdly, how does God want me to actually do this? By putting these things uh, I've learned and studied into practice. How am I going to do the law? Okay, so, so far today we've looked at two big questions, right? What is the law? God's good gift to us is these culture-shaping instructions to form and shape us for his purposes. And we said, second question was, how should we respond to the law, right? By, by hearing and learning and doing it. But there's a final question that I want us to consider. Who is this law for? Now, maybe that sounds like an overly simplistic question, Right? It's for the Israelites, right? So we look at verse uh, 45. Um, again, I don't have it on the screen, but if you have it in, uh, look in your Bibles at verse 45. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Right? So first and foremost, the law is indeed for the people of Israel who are gathered on the plains just to the east of Jericho, on the, on the east uh, of, the bank, of the river Jordan. And yet at the same time, look at chapter 5, verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers, did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us alive here today. Now, this is kind of a curious statement to make. Although some of the people who are alive at the moment that Moses was preaching were perhaps also alive at Mount Sinai, as kids, it's very likely that many were not. And meanwhile, that entire adult generation from Sinai was now dead. In the desert. So which generation did God make this covenant with? Well, in some sense, neither. And in another sense, with both. Because the point Moses wants to make clear is that God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. Not just specific Israelites who happened to be alive at the moment when he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. So that's why he can say to them, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Even if none of them were actually there at that moment, they were present sort of collectively, spiritually, as part of the nation of Israel. 
which makes this moment now on the banks of the River Jordan so significant. Because Moses is about to launch into a a retelling of the the Ten Commandments that we're going to start looking at next week. And then an extensive expansion on all the, the civil and the ceremonial laws that should govern their identity in the promised land. But the context for all that is a covenant that was made with their uh, father's generation 38 years earlier. A time that must have seemed ages ago for some of them. So I'm, I'm 48 years old, and I think I can barely remember when I was 10 years old. Right? That, that's a long time uh, ago. But Moses wants them to see and hear and understand that this covenant, this law, was every bit as much for them as it was for their parents. And in this sense, the Mosaic covenant is, is perhaps less, of, less like a bill of sale for, for a car you might buy. It's more, more like uh, maybe the, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, Right? Because after all, none of us in here were alive in 1787 when it was first written or a few years later when it was ratified. None of us are even distantly, well, it's unlikely that any of us are even distantly related to the people who signed it or ratified it. And yet we recognize that to be an American citizen is to live under the authority and the power of that great document. And that's what Moses wants the people to see, that although they personally never signed on the dotted line, although they were personally never present at Mount Sinai, to be an Israelite meant to live under the authority and power of this great document that was binding on them. But that creates a new question for us, because we're not... Jews. We're not Israelites. This is a completely different time, place, context. Right? We're Christians. We live on the other side of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. This covenant was not actually made with us. And if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, then what obligations do we have to keep these te- testimonies and statutes and rules? Well, in a strictly technical sense, because this covenant was not made with us, this as a covenantal stipulations, they don't apply to us. Right? It was made with the people of Israel, and Christ is the end of the law, as Paul says in Romans. The law was our guardian, Paul says in Galatians, until Christ came. And Jesus himself says in Matthew that he is the fulfillment of of the law. The law, nevertheless, is still good, for it reveals God's character and describes in detail the ways in which we should be living out the commands to love God and to love others. The tricky part, then, is trying to identify how we go about applying these laws, then, to our lives. Right? We're going to get lots of practice on this over the coming weeks, but the process is going to be pretty similar uh, every time. So first, we're going to say, well, what did this commandment or statute meet in, mean in its original context for the Israelite people? 
What would this law have meant for them? Then we're going to say, second, what is the underlying principle behind this law? So, for example, at the end of chapter 4, we just read about these cities of refuge where, where someone who committed manslaughter could flee to. Well, the underlying principle here is a, a protection from vigilante justice, right? And the idea that there's a, a right to, to a fair trial. And then we're going to go to the third step, which is how can we then bring that same principle to bear in our cultural context, which is so different from theirs. So in the example of cities of refuge, we're basically talking about the idea of due process, right? The idea that we're innocent until proven guilty, which, by the way, applies to lots of different situations, not just to manslaughter. So even within our families, Right? We don't want to judge each other too quickly or unfairly without pausing to ensure that we have all the details. How many times as parents have we been too quick to rush to discipline, only to then have to backtrack and apologize later because we didn't have all the facts and we didn't understand what was going on. And laws like these are meant to create a culture that would prevent these kinds of misunderstandings and failures. And then finally, we will always stop to examine how this law finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. After all, we learn from Romans 8 that the law is ultimately powerless to transform the flesh. The law can reveal sin, it can even put some limitations on sin, but it can never deal with sin. Law cannot change the human heart. Only Christ has the power to do that. So we're going to look at how does this passage of Scripture point forward to Christ's role as the fulfillment of the law. Well, there's a, a lot more that could be said about the law, and we're going to look at this over the summer. But for now, I want to end with just one final observation from this text, and that's the very personal nature of the law. So if you look again at verse 4 here, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. If you go back through Chapter 4, fire has been a recurring theme in this chapter over and over and over again. Fire, thunder, smoke. We read that in Exodus when Landon read that earlier. And yet in the middle of all that terrifying holiness of God, we read that God spoke with his people face to face. Not literally, of course, because no one can see God, but metaphorically, meaning God spoke with them personally, intimately. The Holy One of Israel reaching down from his throne into their mess to reveal himself. It, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. The idea that such sinful people would be able to meet in any way with the author of life is astonishing. And that's what we read here. But as amazing as that was, it was really just a foretaste, right, of what was to come. 
Because some 13 or 1400 years later, the Word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, human flesh, and actually came and dwelled among us. Not as a literary device or a metaphor, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the form and likeness of men. And this Jesus walked and talked and ate and drank and lived and eventually died for us on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we might be able to experience fellowship with God both now and forever. And so my final encouragement as we embark on this journey through the study of the law is to see Christ in and through it all. His living, breathing presence alive in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who enables us to live lives that are truly holy and pleasing in his sight. As we wait for the glorious day when he will return and usher us into his presence forever. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this gift that you have given us, speaking your words into our lives, reaching down from your holy throne, Lord, into our lives, speaking to us face to face, guiding, shaping, forming us into the people that you want us to be. And I pray that you would help us to not just read, but to truly listen and hear and know and learn and study and internalize and do your law, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.